CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Very glad to be back with you today for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We're going back to our roots uh, today, as we're trying to do a little bit more frequently in the midst of the coronavirus uh, emergency that surrounds us, um, we're going to talk some politics. But in talking politics, you can't separate politics from what's happening with the virus right now. And so uh, we won't even try to do that. But we are going to get uh, the, the virus uh, side of politics in and then move on to some campaign issues just uh, as quickly as we can in the show today. we got a great panel to do that, of course, Greg Bluestein, the political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is with us. He remains sheltered at home with his two daughters, who are um, on some days driving him completely out of his mind and other days making his life more beautiful. Greg, which one of those days is today? <laughs> some days driving me out of my mind. Uh, no, today they're being pretty good. They haven't run down here to the basement quite yet, but um, I expect it soon. Are you? Uh, you're, and you just told me you're get you're starting to go out and report again. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always kind of gone to the press conferences and, and tried to, to hit events and, and things that are happening. But um, you know, now that now that Georgia's economy is going to start, we think reopening on Friday, and we'll see how many stores actually reopen. We've got to be out there to cover it. So um, I, I think a lot a lot more. AJC reporters will be out and about. All right. Be careful. Please be safe. Yes, of course. Dr. Audrey Haynes, a political science professor from the University of Georgia, is with us, among other things. She is the founder of the Applied Political Science Program at UGA, which we've talked about before on the show. You know it's the program that helps teach to train students to go into careers in politics. Audrey how are you holding up out there in Athens? Well, we're, we're um, trying to move into wrapping up the semester. So we're talking to students who, some of them, unfortunately, have really had a tough time accessing Wi-Fi, and a lot of them are advocating for pass-fail versus regular grades. So there's a lot of activity going on. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us, even as you're coming to the end of the year. I imagine you're very busy. We also are joined today by uh, Dr. Alan Abramowitz. He, of course, political science professor at Emory University. Alan, how about you? Things going on? Alan Abramowitz, I have to say, for, his, for a guy who is his, you're a very serious and highly respected uh, member of the political science uh, community, <laughs> academic community. You send out some of the goofiest emails <laughs> Thank goodness that I've gotten. I, I love the fact that you have a sense of humor in the middle of all of this. Amen. Well, it's important to try to preserve that sense of humor as we're going through this, I think. Uh, and there are some people who help us do that out there. You know, there, there are some people putting out some great uh, material, including some of the, the uh, Mike Luckovich of the uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution is, is, is one of them. The cartoonist, he's great. Yeah. Uh, well, I appreciate getting uh, some of what you're sending out. Um, we also are joined by Adam Van Brimmer, the editorial director of Savannah Morning News, who joins us from uh, Savannah. How are you, Adam? You doing all right this morning? Yes, good morning, Bill. The kids are still in bed, so I still have my sanity. 
Okay, terrific. Um, you know, normally we start with some figures about uh, the latest uh, uh, toll in Georgia, the number of cases that have been identified in the last 24 hours, uh, the number of deaths. I, I can tell you that we're, we have 44 more deaths reported in the past 24 hours. That's 129 more reported in 48 hours, so we, we continue to have a toll. But I, but I want to turn to a number that I think uh, creates a different perspective that really leads into the conversation we're going to start with. Uh, and, and that's this. The New York Times has been looking at the um, how each state has dealt with the virus, the impact the virus has had on each state. And one of the uh, data points that they've been gathering is uh, deaths per 100,000. And uh, they've broken it down by region. And this morning they posted the results of what they've been studying. Um, so as of last night... Uh, the New York Times reports that Georgia has had 7.6 deaths per 100,000 people in the state. Um, that may or may not sound like a lot to you, it does to me, but it leads every other state in the South. Mississippi, 6.1, Oklahoma, 4.1, Florida, 4.0, Kentucky, 3.8, Virginia, 3.8, Alabama, 3.8, South Carolina, 2.6, Tennessee, 2.4, North Carolina, 2.1, and Texas, 1.9, Arkansas, 1.4. So when you compare us to other states in the region, we have a much higher death count. The only state in the South that has a higher per 100,000 fatality rate is Louisiana, where, of course, they had a terrible outbreak after um, uh, Mardi Gras. They are at 30.2 deaths per 100,000. So I think that's a figure today to keep in mind as we're going to start the conversation uh, talking about Governor Kemp's decision to reopen the state. But, Greg Bluestein, before we get to that, and that's a meaty conversation, we learned this morning that the Vernon Jones saga may be coming to an end in terms of his service as an elected official in Georgia. State Representative uh, Vernon Jones announced today he was resigning from the state legislature. What's that all about? Yeah, a brief recap. Vernon Jones was, is the Democrat from Lithonia, who's a former CEO of DeKalb County, very controversial, uh, endorsed George W. Bush, and that helped lead to his defeat in the, in the Senate run about a decade ago. Um, just last week, he endorsed President Trump. Um, he, he's in a heavily Democratic district, has a, a primary challenger who quickly party leaders endorsed within like, you know, an hour. Most party leaders, Stacey Abrams, Nikema Williams, endorsed the challenger. This morning he announced he's stepping down. Um, we expect him to play either an official role or an unofficial role in the Trump campaign. Uh, we haven't heard anything quite yet about that, but uh, clearly he has something else in the works um, and that he's going to announce pretty soon. But yeah, he... Um, to, uh, he, he announced his resignation, and I don't think many Democrats are are, are shedding tears. Uh, if, if they are, they're shedding tears of joy right now. <laughs> uh, Alan, his quotes in the statement he made are pretty uh, provocative. Here, here's one of them. Quote, turn the lights off. I have left the plantation. Uh, just one of the things that he had to say. <laughs> Uh, and then he went on and said, I'm sick and tired of me and my family being tacked and harassed by the Democratic Party 
for putting my country before my party. Uh, what do you make of all that? Um, well, I've thought for a while that, um, you know, he, 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 especially since the uh, official announcement that he was endorsing Trump for re-election, that, that he was uh, you know, trying to uh, position himself uh, for some sort of role in the Trump campaign or in the Trump administration, that he could see that uh, he, was, he was not going to uh, uh, be able to continue in his current position very long. He was facing a, a pretty serious residency challenge as well. Uh, aside from the uh, fact that he had a, a really serious uh, primary challenger, so you know his chances of remaining in that seat in the legislature were were pretty pretty slim to begin with. He also said, Audrey, I'll throw this one at you. Quote: I intend to help the Democratic Party get rid of its bigotry against black people that are independent and conservative. I endorsed the white guy, Donald J. Trump, that let blacks out of jail. And they, meaning the Democrats, endorsed the white guy, Joe Biden, that put blacks in jail. Always provocative, Audrey. Yes, and, you know, I think that's a part of Jones's persona. There, I mean, in every party there are always people who are like that. And, you know, when we talk about them, and there's a limited literature, I mean, most of the time we look at them as, and I hate to use the word, some will take it as a derogatory word, but they're opportunists. They they have political careers. They make their political careers based on the circumstances. And, you know, given his situation, he doesn't really have much of a opportunity um, in the Democratic Party. So where do you go? So he is making that transition over to uh, the Republican Party as a, a associate of Donald Trump. And it may be more, more lucrative for him. It may be... Um, an opportunity for him to uh, sort of remake himself and maintain his political viability in some way. Um, I have to tell you, I'm having a phone issue, so I'm going to hang up and, and call back on another phone. Okay. Um, Greg, do you have anything else about Vernon? We want to move on. Yeah, I'll also add something. I mean, he has become he, – he's gone on some conservative talk radio show hosts for people who – especially outside the states who are un- completely unfamiliar with them. You, di- you didn't see the Republican Party of Georgia cozy up to him in a major way. You didn't see, you know, David Schaefer, the, the chairman of the Georgia mm-hmm. GOP, or, or any Republican leaders say, welcome, mm-hmm. welcome aboard. But nationally, he has become something of a figure. He has, he has skyrocketed to 40,000 Twitter followers from, I think, less than 1,000 not so long, you know, a week ago. Um, everything he tweets um, gets a lot of response um, nationally. Um, so it's it's interesting to w- to watch a very local guy um, become something of something of a of a of at least a uh, a, a, a well known Republican um, uh, nationally in, in like a few days. All right. Well, we'll watch how Vernon Jones manages to uh, stay in the public eye despite the fact now resigning from the legislature and whether Bluestein is correct that perhaps he'll become a national figure as an African American who uh, criticizes his party for what he says is racist and uh, may get involved in the, the campaign uh, for President Trump. All right, so let's move on and, and get to the meat of a, a good portion of this show, I think. And that's the response that we've seen to Governor Kemp's decision announced two nights ago to uh, open the state back up, he says, in a very limited way uh, to business, um, it, it's, he's got an enormous response. 
a great deal of it negative. Um, I I think we should play. Let's just hear um, Governor Kemp justify his decision in an interview that he did on Fox News last night. Uh, let's play soundbite number two, guys. It's going to be very limited in scope, basic operations. We're talking about a few businesses that I closed down to help uh, flatten the curve, which we have done in our state. But for us to continue to ask them to do that while they lose everything, quite honestly, uh, there are a lot of civil uh, repercussions of that, mental health issues. We're seeing more patients in our trauma centers in our state because people are just, uh, yeah. you know, they're, they're tired of it. And, it's a, you know, it's a tough balance. Um, so, Greg, let, let me start with you on this. Uh, I, one of the issues I think we've seen with this governor is it's, it's very hard. The communications are not quite as direct as you would like them to be. He sometimes makes comments we're not quite sure exactly what he's referring to, at least I'm not. When he says, um, we're talking about a few businesses that are closed down to help flatten the curve, suggesting that mm, the state was basically kind of open already, so what we're doing now isn't much of a stretch, um, he overlooks the fact that we have a shelter-in-place order that people may run in and out of supermarkets. They um, they're certainly not running out to, they can't go to bars. They can go to restaurants for mostly carryout service. I, I just think his messaging here isn't as direct and straight as we need it to be. Yeah, I mean, my takeaway from that interview last night was, was him saying this is not a big leap. But, but in reality, this is an aggressive step. It puts him, I know there's some other states that didn't have any statewide orders, right? Uh, and there's some states like Colorado who have taken um, similarly aggressive steps. But Georgia is, is sort of the, um, the poster child for, uh, for, for, for reopening or phasing in some of, the, some of the reopening of the economy. And, it, and, it, and it's even getting um, pushback from, from fellow Republicans, like Lindsey Graham yesterday said it was too soon, and he's worried about the impact in, in neighboring South Carolina. But the, the balance he's trying to strike, too, is that you're right. Doing, when, he, when he closed down, when, he, when the shelter-in-place order took, took effect April 3rd, Really, the only businesses other than bars and 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 um, restaurants and um, nightclubs that were shut down were a lot of these close contact businesses. A lot of the other stores, you know, grocery stores, convenience stores, retail shops were allowed to stay open, even if many of them did close. Um, and so he's trying to say that, hey, this only uh, opens a limited number of stores that I closed April third, but to the rest of the nation. You're opening barbershops and tattoo parlors, places where you cannot socially distance, massage therapists, these, these places. And seeing how that, seeing how people strike that balance on Friday, those, those businesses that, that manage to reopen is going to be really tough. You know, Adam, that's one of the biggest questions I heard uh, discussed on the uh, various cable news shows yesterday. Uh, how do you, in fact, maintain social distancing if you are a hair cutter? If you run a beauty parlor, if you're a massage therapist, uh, it's it's really uh, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, so, Adam, how do you how do you respond to that? I've talked to a few people that are in those businesses, and it's kind of interesting the 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 
definition and how it kind of adjusts and changes in terms of social distancing. Most of the folks in those industries that I know that are going to go back to work are saying, well, I'm going to wear a mask. I'm going to wear gloves. I'm going to ask that the clients do likewise. And it's it's really a it's a bigger situation to me because we talked to a bunch of businesses in the last couple of days that are applying or have applied for the for the stimulus money, the small business stimulus money, the PPP, and they're not having any success in getting access to that money. So they're really, really concerned that the, the fallback, the backstop they were supposed to have has not come and, and been there yet. So a lot of them are anxious to go ahead and get started. They're going to be very careful about the clients that they see. I assume that that, that means they're not going to have a whole lot of senior citizens sitting in their chair or laying on their table or, or anything like that. But it really comes – what it's going to come down to is personal responsibility and how people want to or how eager they are to go out in public and mix and and basically practice their own form of isolation or their own form of social distancing or, or not doing those things. So, Alan, I want to bring you in on this, but but, but before I do, I want you, all of us to listen to uh, a, a response that Deborah Burks gave last night at the White House briefing when she was asked about Governor Kemp's decision to start opening the state up for business again to allow for barbershops, tattoo parlors, massage therapists, and that sort of thing. And, and, and she was asked to comment on whether that was a good idea or not. And I think it's especially important to listen carefully to the way in which she answered the question. Uh, Let's play number five. I believe people in Atlanta would understand that if their cases are not going down, that they need to continue to do everything that we said, social distancing, washing your hands, wearing a mask in public. So if there's a way that people can social distance and do those things, then they can do those things. I don't know how, but people are very creative. So I'm not going <clears> to <throat> prejudge, but we have told people very clearly, and the president guidelines made it very clear, about the expectations of phase one. Ellen, I don't think that was a full-throated endorsement of what the governor is doing. No, and, uh, you know, this is kind of typical of the kind of mixed messaging that we've been hearing from the president and his team. So on the one hand, we have the president's public health advisors who are urging caution and and, and uh, expressing concern about uh, opening up for business uh, the way uh, Governor Kemp is, what Governor Kemp's trying to do. On, on the other hand, the president himself, you know, has been giving encouragement to these uh, protesters around the country who have been calling for reopening for business as usual, uh, and uh, and and themselves, you know, uh, appearing in crowds uh, uh, without paying any attention to social distancing guidelines at all, and uh, and and so, you know, it's it's it seems that uh, we, you know we're, we're getting a very mixed message there. What we what we do know is that the public opinion polling data is telling us that this sort of uh, effort right now to reopen for business is doesn't have much public support. Yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, it, uh, we have a, several polls that we do not have any Georgia polls at this point. I hope we'll get something soon, maybe from the University of Georgia, maybe the AJC. Um, 
But we have an NBC Wall Street Journal uh, poll. We have a YouGov poll. We have a poll from Morning Consult. And, Alan, all of them really are pretty similar in what they tell us in the, yeah, M- in the NBC poll. At, yeah, go ahead. No, they all, they all show that uh, um, the large majority of Americans uh, are more concerned about trying to reopen too quickly than, than they are uh, uh, about waiting too long. Uh, and that there's not much yeah. support at all for doing this, and there's very little support for the protesters. Uh, so, uh, you know, I would be very surprised if the polling in Georgia looked looked very different. E- even among Republicans in these polls, um, there's a, a pretty high level of concern about, about trying to reopen too quickly. Yeah, but the, it is interesting, Audrey. Uh, in the NBC Wall Street Journal poll and in the uh, uh, YouGov poll, 60% say they support keeping stay-at-home restrictions in place. 58% say they're more worried about stopping the virus than about the uh, economy. But uh, it, it asked uh, how worried, if they're more worried about the virus and the economy, it's 77% of Democrats who say, yes, they are. It's 39% of Republicans. So, Audrey, there is a partisan split here. And that may lead us to the next part of our conversation, which are what are the political implications of Governor Kemp's decision? Audrey? Well, let me backtrack just a moment there, um, Bill, and talk about that, that, that split. Because Pew actually did a very involved survey recently, and they looked at that, and they looked at the amount of information that people were getting and where they were getting that information. So with everyone sheltering at home and, and you know, access to news about corona being, you know, something that is available, many people, especially people who pay attention to news, have been reading about it and learning about it, and some of that information lags now, and, and that's reflected in the polls. But if you look at what Q did, they, they, they broke it down in people who were more concerned about the economy versus more concerned about the virus. And one thing that was prevalent was their news source. And, and I'm sure that you could, based on your knowledge, predict what that news source or news sources might be for the Republicans who, uh, and conservatives who, in particular, did not uh, feel a great amount of concern. And another factor was where they live if they're living in a rural area that hasn't seen very much of the spread. So news source, where you live, are having an impact on on people. But, you know, partisanship is also a a major part of that. But it is interesting to see that the Republicans are split, and independents and Democrats both are very concerned about the virus. So how this plays for the president, you know, there could be a backlash. He's very concerned about the economy, but I think that his poor messaging and – the, the uncertainty people feel um, may have a negative impact on his polling results, but um, that's something that we're going to have to watch and, and see what strategies they're using to confront that. Greg? Yeah, one of the things that's been interesting to watch, too, is how um, campaign advertising is, is is playing even a more prominent role. I think we've talked about this on the show before, but with all this, all these voters and captive audiences, um, paid communications could play an even larger role in these, these campaigns, especially with, with all the data that campaigns can collect in Georgia about who has received an, a, a ballot request form. 
Um, this morning, the New York Times reported that, I'm going to pull it up, more than 50% of all political ads on TV are about the coronavirus, the first time that a majority of ads were focused on the outbreak. So it shows you how campaign ad advertising is revving up and how um, the focus is so much on this coronavirus outbreak. It's, 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 it's heavy. Well, and Camp has to push um, back as long as on the... that, Bill. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. I mean, there's so no, much information about the coronavirus that, and the stories um, that the media have been doing have been really dominant in that. Um, and so here is the governor who, um, you know, one of the stories that may not have been uh, making it and breaking it through all of the uh, coronavirus coverage is the state of the economy and the state budget. And we were just talking about how, um, you know, new chair and appropriations and some of the tough decisions that are going to have to be made at the university. I will tell you that we, we are starting to be affected by it too. Um, there's going to be freezing of all kinds of resources. And so now people are starting to focus on that a little bit more. And I think that's where some of the governors are feeling some of the heat to respond, even if it's in a very limited way. You know, I think that's a very important point, uh, Audrey. Um, Adam, you can't envy what any governor, uh, for that matter, even the president of the United States, mayors are going through as they see their economies completely crash, see the unemployment numbers skyrocket. I mean, we can understand that post-virus, and there will come a time when the virus isn't the predominant uh, issue that we're dealing with, uh, we're going to be living in a devastating time economically. So you can at least get it, understand why there is such concern among leaders about how to balance between trying to find a way to get people working again and protecting their lives. The problem is, if you try to get the jobs going too soon, you're just extending the life of the virus. Yes, I don't envy any leaders. You know, I talked to to our own mayor here in Savannah not too long ago a little bit about how he's kind of handled it and how he's doing it. He he may have been one of the early people to really deal with a controversial decision regarding this virus because he basically, as the virus was starting to spread and as it was starting to become a concern here, it coincided with the St. Patrick's Day celebration here that draws hundreds of thousands of people. And he wrestled with whether to cancel that celebration or not. Ultimately, he did. And when you look at what happened in New Orleans of Mardi Gras, you think it was it was a very, very wise move because we, we haven't had the outbreak here and haven't had the surge here. And uh, But what is really striking to me is you mentioned mayors and governors. I think it's even harder for them because their governments have to operate with a balanced budget. You know, they're saying in Savannah, it's costing Savannah something like $150,000 a day in terms of the city tax revenues and the city tax collections for every day that the shutdown has gone on. And then another $300,000 a week in terms of parking revenue that they use uh, to to shore up another what would otherwise be another big hole in terms of their budget. And then you look at the state. I, I heard Mary Margaret Oliver say, what, $1.5 billion, and that may end up being low. About the only one that really yeah. doesn't have to worry about it is the president, right? They don't have to balance the budget. They'll just issue more Treasury notes, and, and obviously they're in demand. So he can play he can play this thing a little bit more politically than the others do, but it's the, it's the more local leaders, whether it's Governor Kemp or, or Mayor Johnson or a county commission chair that I really can kind of feel for. 
All right, so let, let's before we break, let's talk just briefly about the political calculation here. Alan, the governor, was adamant. The most emotional that he got in the news conference in which he announced he was kind of starting to slowly open the state back up for business was when he was asked the question of what political calculation did he have in mind, and he very, he kind of, you know, thumped uh, the podium and said, politics be damned, uh, this is about those people who have not been able to work. They've had to close their small businesses. They are trying to collect unemployment. I mean, it was a very impassioned plea on behalf of those people. But uh, mm-hmm. let's face it, there's a political calculation on all sides of this, yes? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing uh, in the public opinion polling data that um, approval of the president's handling of the pandemic has been declining. Um, you know, and, and uh, I'm sure that's a big concern to the White House uh, and to the president. Uh, and, and here in Georgia, there's no question, I think, that uh, Kemp's decision is motivated in part by uh, his wish to kind of remain in, in the good standing with the president and his allies and, uh, uh, and with, uh, you know, the conservative base of the Republican Party, which is where, where this pressure to reopen the economy is really concentrated uh, among, you know, the conser- that conservative base uh, and some elements of the business community. And those are very important to, to the governor. And uh, unfortunately, I, I think that the likely outcome of this is that um, we're going to see, and this is what the public health experts are, are telling us, that uh, you reopen these sorts of businesses to the extent that they do reopen, um, it's just going to lead to a spike in, in, in infections. Um, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're going to see, that's what we've seen happen in other places. And, and then, then you end up having to shut, shut down again. So, um, you know, it's very questionable to me that this is going to be an effective strategy for for restarting the economy. You know, Greg, uh, Alan uh, makes a point about the conservative base, and it's been fascinating to watch what essentially appears to be a rebirth of the Tea Party movement in uh, several states across the country, states like Michigan, where we've seen large-scale demonstrations Open the country, open the state back up, live free or die. Uh, you're taking away my First Amendment rights to get. Um, and and there, you know, and we were scheduled on Friday to have a similar rally here in Georgia, which, to the best of my knowledge, is still going forward. But I think there's not much question that those the people involved in a rally like that are likely to be uh, Kemp supporters. And I wonder what he thinks about that demonstration and whether it needs to be, those people need to be ameliorated in some way. Yeah, and it might be more of a victory lap now than a, than a protest. Uh, and it's, it's interesting, too, because there's an anti-demonstration now uh, scheduled for a couple hours later on Friday uh, of people who, who want to keep the state shut down. Um, but the weird thing about this becoming uh, our version, you know, the, the, the pandemic's version of the Tea Party is back in the Tea Party days, they were railing at the Democratic president. Um, and now you're seeing uh, these folks who are who are protesting uh, Republican policies under a Republican president. Um, so it's it's 
it's interesting to me to see that that tension um, because you know there there are many people in in the in the governor's base who have been calling him, who have been urging him, have been running him letters to reopen the economy sooner. And you started seeing the first public signs of that last late last week with State Representative David Clark, an ally of the governor's, coming out and and urging him to open the governor. Monroe County became the first county commission that we know of um, to to pass a resolution urging just that. And these are. These are representatives either in densely Republican areas in the suburbs or in rural areas that, that voted overwhelmingly for, for the governor. And so his base is, is pushing on him pretty hard. Well, uh, you have you, we right here in Georgia, we have Democratic mayors who are angry about the governor's decision. We see that at, at Adam, you point out Van Johnson, your mayor in Savannah, uh, Hardy Davis in Augusta, Bo Duro in uh, Albany. They're angry. They think this is a terrible mistake. On the other hand, you have uh, Steve Tumlin, the mayor of Marietta, saying, I've already got my appointment book all set. I'm going to go get my haircut on Friday, and then I'm going to start going to restaurants next week for all my meals, and, uh, and I hope you'll all join me. So just the last word before we go to break, Audrey, there's no question that there is a huge partisan divide over an issue that many people would say is really about life and death, not Republican or Democrat. The American public should be very concerned about the nature of politics right now, because when you have as gruesome and challenging of a situation as we do with this pandemic, and there is limited trust in government, poor messaging, division um, at every turn, when someone's attitude about something as, you know, uh, you know, basic as a, a virus that can spread very quickly and, and literally kill people, when you have different views about that, different information, um, that should be cause for concern. You know, fundamentally, government is not operating when it cannot coordinate and when it cannot message appropriately. And when the people in government are not trying to do those things, then that is very problematic. All right, you get the last word in the first uh, segment of the show. We're very, very late to take a break. Tom Faust is pulling what Harry has left out, trying to get me to take one. Uh, So let's do it now. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Well, there is still, of course, 2020 election campaigns that are underway, and uh, we want to spend a few minutes at least talking about some of the highlights or lowlights in the first case of what's going on out there. Greg Bluestein, Republicans recognize that they have a problem attracting women voters these days. They know it's something they have to overcome. They, we certainly think Brian Kemp put Kelly Leffler in that Senate seat hoping to do that. How then do we explain, even though this didn't come, we have no reason to believe this came from certainly the state party. It may have been some outlier group. Uh, Renee Unterman was the subject of an attack piece that was startling in the sexist, 
descriptions of her. Uh, it The mailer said, why the bimbo, with a picture of her not looking her best. And it said, Renee Unterman has lost her looks despite expense, extensive plastic surgery and Botox injections, proving once again you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, but it is still stupid, dishonest, evasive, inept, and ethically conflicted. What the heck is that all about? And they couldn't even spell her name right. Um, uh, I mean, yeah. uh, we, we wrote that the source of attack is almost certainly Republican um, uh, because the Democratic attack would have, would have, would have led on Unterman's sponsorship of, of anti-abortion measures. Uh, we don't know who is behind the attack, but certainly anyone who's been on social media um, anytime recently has seen plenty of this. And, it, and it's just it, – it's it's – it's alarming. It's it's problematic, especially for 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 women who who want to step up and run for office and put themselves in the public sphere. Certainly, Stacey Abrams on the Democratic side faced many of those attacks as well uh, uh, two years ago. Um, and you know, we'd we'd love to we'd love to figure out who who sent this ad. Um, we we reached out to to this mailer. We've reached out to many many operatives and activists in that in that general. We have a lot, we have some leads, but no de- de- definitive mark on on who actually sent it. All right. Well, Political Rewind listeners, some of you are Republicans out there who probably don't like this sort of uh, uh, messaging. So let us know what you know. We'd love to hear from you. Um, uh, Audrey, uh, this has got to make you furious as 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 the female member of our panel today. <laughs> well, you know, my other um, uh, area that I teach and, and am very interested in is uh, propaganda. And, you know, this piece really fits into it. And number one, you know, it, it really is poorly done. Uh, bimbo, I mean, if you think about the definition of bimbo, bimbos are usually attractive and unintelligent women. And, you know, the whole phraseology in this thing is just poorly done. So whatever operation did it didn't do a very good job. I'm not sure it was very effective. Um, but I would tell you that there there's a whole discourse about these types of um, usually uh, dark money-related uh, pieces. They have been coming up since the late, uh, around 2012, 2013, when a lot of the the uh, campaign finance rules change, and because they don't have a disclaimer, you know, there's no disclaimer on there that says paid for by, um, and they don't have to have that by law. So these aren't necessarily illegal because they don't have vote for or vote on. So basically, in political campaigns, you can put stuff like this out that may be blatantly irresponsible and you know it's not considered illegal and that may that may be we're going to see more of things like that um also there there are times when uh there have been evidences that people campaigns have put stuff out out like this not saying that Renee Enterman did put it out there to get um uh, some support, you know, people might go, oh, that's terrible, but they, the campaign may have put it out themselves to kind of get some attention um, uh, to make themselves look better for some reason. I don't think that's the case now, but it'll be interesting to find out who did it because um, I'd fire them. Uh, Alan, we haven't had a chance to talk about our congressional races for quite a while. Um, yeah. <laughs> excuse me. But you're, you're the way you uh, uh, look at campaigns and 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 start analyzing data and making uh, projections about who's likely to. What are yeah. you seeing up there in the seventh district where Renee Unterman is the 
one of the Republican candidates. How does that really right. seem to be shaping up to you? Well, I, I think that's going to be uh, one of the most competitive House races in the country, just as it was in 2018. So uh, in, in 2018, uh, Democratic candidate Carolyn Bordeaux, you know, came within an eyelash of, of, of winning that race against the Republican incumbent. The incumbent uh, is not running again. And so it's an open seat. Um, there's competitive Democratic primary. There's a competitive Republican primary. That's one of the seats that, uh, you know, everyone's going to be watching with the 6th District again. Uh, you know, which Democrats took back uh, in 2018 uh, is, is another one. So, you know, around the country, there, there are probably a couple dozen of these uh, House races that are going to be the focus of, uh, of, of attention. Uh, right, right now, you know, looking at the national polling numbers, uh, at the generic ballot numbers, and looking at some of the individual races, and especially on the Senate side, um, you know, I, I'd say it's, it's looking like the Dem Democrats – are right now, and based on fundraising as well, are looking pretty well positioned to hold their majority in the House, possibly expand it a little. Um, but the most interesting thing to me is that it looks like the Senate is, is more likely to be in play uh, than we thought earlier, um, that the Democrats, I think, have a decent chance to pick up enough seats there to get back to 50 or 51 seats, um, you know, if you look at the seats that are, that are likely to be in play. Well, it has been fascinating to see some of the most hotly contested races. Kentucky against Mitch McConnell, uh, for example, uh, Arizona, um, where you've got Republican incumbents and the Democrats have been out raising them. And those, yes. those are interesting uh, 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 signs yes. of something's brewing out there. Yeah, you North had that Georgia, too, because you had Raphael Warnock outraise both. Uh, Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler, and they're not raising the same giant troves of cash that, that you had in other states, but you still had them with $1.5 million in the first two months of his campaign, uh, outraising Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler, who are both uh, well, both incumbents and, and, and both well-known um, at this point in, in, in Republican circles. Yep. Um, and, Alan, you're saying North Carolina has the same situation. Oh, yeah, they're, they're, I, I would point to I – mean, Right now, I mean, North Carolina looks like a toss-up race. Maine, I think Susan Collins is in, is in big trouble. Her, her approval numbers are uh, upside down. She's, she's really underwater. Um, you mentioned Arizona. Um, you know, on, on the other hand, you know, the Democrats are likely to lose the seat in, in Alabama, um, but so they, they would need to pick up four to, uh, to, to get to 50 seats, and, and that would result in a 50-50 in split. Democratic vice president, if there was one, could break the tie. So, uh, you know, it's it's, it's looking, I, I'd say, a little, a little more likely now than, than it did a few weeks ago. Uh, let's turn to uh, the Senate race just briefly, Adam. Um, John Ossoff has become the first Democratic candidate in race number one, well, or in race number two, for that matter, to launch a TV ad campaign. Uh, he's... Uh, he praises his wife, who is a doctor, and talks about how uh, uh, people like his wife are, are showing great courage to uh, treat the sick right now, which is certainly true. And then he goes on and he, uh, he launches an attack on insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies 
for their high costs. And we can imagine that's going to probably be a major part, a major message in his campaign moving forward. But Adam, uh, the question is, it, I, I don't know how much money he's put in this campaign. Maybe Bluestein does. But I can't help but wonder if right now you're going to get the attention of uh, viewers uh, for an ad like this. That's a really hard thing for for all of these candidates, whether it's at the at the federal level or even at the local level. Is how do you campaign right now? We were talking to some some local people just last week about hey, the the election's been pushed to June and ninth. That gives you a little bit more time. Uh, how are you going to adjust to it? Is do you think maybe that's going to give you time to do some canvassing and and do some of the more traditional things that are done in campaigning ahead of an election? Obviously, senatorial candidates. Not very many of them end up going door to door, but they're used to doing rallies and appearances. And so I really think that puts a, a, greater, um, a, a greater need for television and, and radio advertising. And you knew it was only a matter of time before they started to pop up, whether it was, was, whether it was Ossoff or Sarah Riggs Amico or Teresa Tomlinson. Those are three that, quite frankly, most of the state doesn't know a whole lot about. So they need to really get their their brand awareness out there, and mm-hmm. then they need to hit on differentiators. And that's what Ossoff is doing with with the pharmaceuticals and insurance companies is trying to differentiate himself and really grab onto an grab onto an issue that's front of mind. Greg, I'll give you one last word on this before we got to get to a break. But yeah, maybe that makes sense. You can't go out and campaign, so you better start using TV. Still, I'm wondering what the concentration level is like for viewers. Yeah, I mean, you know, if we're running out of things to watch on Netflix, people are starting to get overwhelmed with the coronavirus news. But really, I think this super helps um, uh, anyone with high name recognition. So this is good for Carolyn Bardot in the seventh. This is good for John Ossoff in the Senate race. This is good for people who already have that sort of, um, that, that even if they're not incumbent, that sort of name brand recognition. All right, I got to get to our final break of the show. We'll do that and come back with just a little more on today's Political Rewind. We're back on Political Rewind. We've only got a few minutes left. So, Greg, let me uh, turn this over to you as a starting point. Um, We now have a new federal lawsuit that challenges the way that the uh, Secretary of State plans to run the election. A voting rights group and some individuals have filed a federal lawsuit saying they think, number one, the June 9th election should be moved again because there's concern among these groups that you can't get poll workers out. You're going to have a hard time bringing voters to the polls. And they're arguing that we should vote by hand because touchscreens raise the risk of the spread of coronavirus. It's hard to tell how far a lawsuit like that will get, but it does suggest there are people out there who are still very concerned about what voting is going to look like as late as June 9th. Yeah, it's important to note that this one's not backed by any any the Democratic Party or any prominent Democratic officials like like some so many of these other lawsuits are. Um, and Democrats still the party's still pushing for the primary to go ahead of schedule June 9th now, but with added precautions. But no, you're right; it, it still underscores um, the deep concerns. Um, you know, even though unprecedented numbers of, of voters are expected to mail their ballots in this election um, in person. Locations must remain open, and, and there's still going to be a significant portion of the population that, that shows up in person. Uh, Alan, there's an interesting uh, calculation, it seems to me, going on here. 
Um, instead of having that late March primary initially, we're now all the way to June 9th. And if you're in mm-hmm. Senate race number one, uh, if you're David Perdue, you got $9 million in the bank that you don't have to spend until you get past the primaries. But if you're a Democrat, if you're one of those three Democrats running in that race, you're, you're going to have to wait until June 10th to be able to move forward with a general election campaign. You're going to have had to spend more money to get to the primary in June. That Doesn't that delayed election, in fact, create some problems for you when you turn to the general? Well, sure. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that whoever ends up as a Democratic nominee is going to be facing a pretty significant uh, monetary deficit going up against David Perdue, you know, who's got this big bankroll and, and, and doesn't have to spend much money right now. Uh, however, I, I you know I would say that once the Democrats settle on a nominee and the primary is over, that you're likely to see, uh, you know, pretty substantial increase in their fundraising. And I think you'll see the uh, you, you, you may very well see the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee coming in uh, and and trying to get, and have some outside groups coming in and giving that candidate a boost if it looks like it's going to be a competitive race. So I think if the polling indicates that Purdue is vulnerable, then I think whoever wins that Democratic nomination will probably uh, you know be able to raise a considerable amount of money and, and get some outside support as well. And we certainly expect to see the uh, Democratic Senate Campaign Committee, Adam, come into race number two because they're already uh, t- talking up Raphael Warnock as their candidate. Yeah, it, uh, Warnock has gotten a tremendous amount of traction. Obviously, he was the leading fundraiser in the in the first quarter, even though he he didn't get into the race until late January. So he really had a small window between when he got in and and when the uh, and when the coronavirus hit. I'm still going to be curious to see what happens with Tarver. Uh, Ed Tarver is, is very well respected, is, is pretty well known. He has the political resume that Warnock does not. And will he be able to, to really dig in and, and, and be a factor in this race? Will uh, I'll be interested to see that. All right. Um, I got to stop the conversation right there. You get the last word, Adam. Adam Van Brimmer, uh, Audrey Haynes. Alan Abramowitz, Greg Bluestein, thank you for a great conversation about politics in Georgia today. Thank you all for listening. Uh, tomorrow we're going to turn back to do a little bit more on, on, on virology and on world health. Uh, President Trump's been attacking the World Health Organization. There's no question the organization has made some mistakes, but we're going to talk to a public health leader who will put it in perspective tell us why global health organization is so crucial. And then we're going to talk a bit about the behavior of viruses and why perhaps we should be concerned about opening up for business too quickly here in Georgia. That's tomorrow. I'll see you then.